0: If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and grab them and turn to our passage this morning, Mark chapter 12. Mark 12 will be in verses 13 through 27, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find our passage this morning on page 797. And if you don't have a Bible you can read at home, please take that as a gift from our church. And if you don't know how to read the Bible, well, you're in the right place, we'd love to teach you. Uh, So you can find one of the pastors at the end of the service in the very back, we'd love to talk with you about how to know the Lord, uh, in particular in His Word. Years ago, a man said this It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. I'm going to repeat that. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. What does that mean? It means people are often unwilling to change their minds if the cost is too high, the risk is too great. If thinking better means changing one's mind, that means they're going to lose and not gain, well, many people will be happy to continue to think poorly. But conversely, people are often happy to change their minds and be educated if it comes with a raise or a promotion or growth in popularity or acceptance. It's interesting that though our culture, glories in individuality and thinking for oneself, we really are a people who seek to think with the people we want to impress and gain acceptance with. We often only think as far as our preferred group will allow us to do so. It's often the case that the fear of man forms the thoughts of men. And when this happens, when this happens, takes place, when acceptance is the aim, when fear either to lose or gain is the primary driver, when we're fearful of losing our seat at the table, the thing that will suffer the most is truth. Truth will no longer be seen as fixed, but fluid. Convenience and not truth will become the guiding principle. And because of this, certainty will be exchanged for uncertainty. What once was clear will eventually become confused. This is the day in which we live. This is the, the thought and drive of our age. But how do we, as believers, avoid getting caught up into the tides, the rising tides of relativity? How do we remain resolute and steadfast in a world that has no moral anchor? How do we find certainty in an age of confusion? That's what we're after this morning. How can we find certainty in an age of confusion? In our passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus gives us two ways to remain steadfast and resolute in an age of confusion. So look with me in our Bible as we see these two things that Christ gives us to do to remain steadfast in him. Starting in verse 13, I'll read all the way through verse 27. This is what Mark wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as far as the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. You are quite wrong. How do we find certainty in an age of confusion? I think from our passage Jesus gives us two ways. Two things we must do if we want to be resolute in a culture that seems to be in disarray. Number one. Entrust yourself to the rule of God. Entrust yourself to the rule of God. And number two, fix your hearts on the Word of God. How do we, how can you find certainty in an age of confusion? Entrust yourself to the rule of God. That's going to be verses 13 through 17. And fix your hearts on the Word of God. That's verses 18 through 27. It is my prayer that through this sermon, as we navigate this broken world, we would not be overcome or afraid by what we face because we have such a spiritual sight that God's word and God's rule will prevail. Let's look at point one now, and trust yourself to the rule of God. Here we saw, as we saw last week, that Jesus has entered into the final week of his life on earth. And his ending of his earthly ministry starts very similar or it ends kind of the way it began with him being confronted by the religious establishment. There in Mark chapter 2, we see these multiple confrontations that Jesus has with these religious leaders over the Sabbath, over his ability to to forgive sins, and over uh, fasting. And here in Mark 12, yet again, Jesus is confronted by the religious establishment as his ministry is soon to be over. In our passage this week, much like last week, we see that men come from the Sanhedrin, This is what the religious council, who was able to make binding religious decisions for Israel, and also represented the people to Rome. And they come to him to confront him with questions, not to get to know anything, but with the aim of his destruction. And they have to be coy about it, because Jesus is very popular at this time, and so they can't simply arrest him, because that might cause a riot. So you have to do it in such a way that's very deceptive, you have to trap him into outing himself. Their hope is to get him to say something against the word of God or the will of the people so that they could get rid of him. And in verse 13, we see the Sanhedrin had sent more men to do their secret bidding. They sent some Pharisees and Herodians. Now, we've seen Jesus confronted by the Pharisees before, but this is the first time to our knowledge he's been confronted by the Herodians. These men were a group of men who were pro-Herod and pro-Rome. What in the world were Pharisees, those who probably hated Rome, doing with those who loved Rome? Well, it meant they hated something more than Rome. They hated Jesus, and they wanted to get rid of him. And they thought they had a a new strategy that Jesus would not see coming. They thought that they could get Jesus to speak against Rome, and that would lead to his demise. And just like the serpent in the garden, they present themselves as a friend and not a foe. They hide their intent of what they're really trying to do. We see this in verse 14. You see how they present themselves to Jesus. They say, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Before they try to stab Jesus in the back, they extend a hand with a smile. They say, Jesus, we've come to you with questions because we know you tell the truth. You fear nobody, not even Caesar. Though what they say is true, their intent is corrupt. They flatter Jesus in hopes of trapping Jesus. They are living examples of Proverbs 29.5. There it says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flattery, as it's been said before, is when you say something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back whereas gossip is where you say things behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. And typically, it's almost always the case that a person who does one will do the other, and it's a certainty those who fear God do neither. Brothers and sisters, it is my prayer that at TRBC, flattery and gossip can't get a word in, that this is the place where they come to suffocate and die where both our private and our public speech about one another would bring glory to God and would be edifying to the saints. It's kind of ironic that they come and praise Jesus for him not giving respect to people or persons, yet while they're trying to gain his praise and impress him with their praise. But they can't hold their mask up for very long. They have to reveal their true intentions. Their questions reveal their motives. They ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Or should we pay them or should we not? This question they, they brought to Jesus is the hope that they can corner Jesus like he cornered them last week. Do you remember that? They come to talk about Jesus and his authority, and Jesus put them in a position where they I would look, either look foolish in front of Jesus or they would look crazy in front of the crowd. And so now the, the tables have been turned because now they put Jesus in a position to either speak against Herod Or Caesar, excuse me, which would lead the Herodians to being angry, which might lead to Jesus' imprisonment, or he would say something to the crowd in such a way that the zealots who hated Rome would become angry and no longer listen to him. This was not a real question, but an attempt at retribution. That's what they were after. In Mark 15, Jesus, or Mark tells us that Jesus sees right through what they're doing. He is not confused by any of it. Mark tells us, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you put me to the test? Or, why are you trying to tempt me to sin? That's what he's saying to them. Mark tells us that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He simply knew they were playing a part and were not being genuine in their intentions and motives. They were deceivers and frauds. Which goes to show you this, that what they said about Jesus is true. He is no respecter of persons. You cannot flatter Jesus. To gain his affection and praise. To gain right standing with him. You can't deceive him. He sees all and knows all. That's one of the concerns I would have for people in our city. And even in our state. Because we live in cultural Christianity, I think there's a lot of people who think they're right with God. Simply because they grew up in church or they occasionally attend church. They think that if they offer up some, a few nice words about Jesus, that Jesus is going to be good with them. They can live their life however they want to as long as they go to church a few years, a few times a year, excuse me. But friend, Jesus did not come to be flattered but to be Lord. He cannot be flattered. If you're here and not a Christian, I would just encourage you with this today. Just come honestly to Jesus because he already sees who you are. He already knows everything about your life, so you can't impress him. He sees more than a polygraph test ever could. He sees all and knows all, so don't waste your time coming with polished appearances and a wayward heart. Come honestly and vulnerably to him because he already sees who you are, and the only thing that can make you right with him is admitting you're wrong. The only thing that can make you right in Jesus' eyes is admitting you're a sinner, that you've done wrong, that you are wrong, and the only thing that you're trusting in is his work and not your own. See, we believe that Jesus died in our place, was raised from the dead, so that whoever would repent of their sin, mean turning from it and trust in him, could be made right with God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the only thing that you can do today that will make you right with God is trusting in Jesus. And we would encourage you to do just that this morning. Though Jesus calls them on their intent, he does not ignore their question. He puts them to the test. He says in verse 15, Bring me a denarius. And let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. These religious leaders came to Jesus thinking they had trapped him. That he would say something brazen and foolish against Caesar in Rome, which would lead to his imprisonment, or maybe it would cost him his life, and he does the complete opposite. Jesus, in this moment, could have usurped Caesar and Rome. He could have undid human government and the role of government in our lives, yet he does the opposite. He affirms it. And not only that, he puts human government in its rightful place, not over and against God, but under God's rule. So what he says here is how he lays it out. You submit to Caesar because Caesar is supposed to submit to God. And it's almost as if he says to them, if you want to live a life pleasing to God, then submit to God by submitting to the governing authorities in your life. And they marveled at Jesus because they did not see this coming. Now, it's not lost on me that I'm standing in front of a bunch of Texans talking about government. When I saw this coming up, I thought about giving this to Barrick, the Canadian, to talk about <laughs> If we can be honest, this can be a hard and challenging conversation. Uh, the last few years has made this even more difficult and painful. It's hard to see a government not only enable sin but endorse it. Uh, if you're a Christian here today, regardless of your political persuasion, seeing a government not only redefine what a marriage is but seek to redefine what a human is and make ways for children to be killed should grieve every single one of us today. Though as grievous as it may be, Christ's command still stands. We as believers are to render to the governing authority what is owed to them regardless if it's tax or honor. And one of the things that we have, we're in a unique place in salvation history. We as Christians are living in a place in a time where we actually have a voice and a vote. So I just want to encourage you, do as much good as you can as long as you possibly can. Go out and seek to use your freedom So that evil is restrained, so that the gospel and the church would flourish in our state and in our nation. Make that your aim. That evil would be restrained, and so that the gospel and the church would flourish in our nation. But all of us today, myself included, should not wince at what Jesus says here. We should not try to find loopholes around what Jesus says. Instead, we should embrace it fully. God is a good God, and whatever he requires of us is good and right, even when it doesn't feel good and right. This is God's plan for our life. From this passage and others, like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, we see that government is actually a gift from God to restrain and punish evil so that people would flourish and so that the gospel would flourish. And God calls us to be obedient to him by submitting to and paying our taxes to the government, even the bad ones. And the only reason we should not submit to governing authorities is if they forbid what God commands or command what God forbids. Now, I know a lot of hypotheticals are going to come to mind. And I would say hypotheticals are as helpful as they are fun, which is not very. (laughs) However, I will say this. If in the future we as Christians feel as though the government is requiring us to sin against God, we must all pray and seek wisdom, and search our own hearts to make sure that our potential defiance of the government isn't merely a dislike of the government. I'll be honest with you, I love the Chisholm Trail. I think it's a superior road. I don't like paying for it, but I love driving on it. And I think the speed limit there is absurdly low for such a fine road. (laughs) I dislike the speed limit. It goes from like 65 and 55, and there's law enforcement everywhere. I'm like, you're just ruining my day. 85 on the Chisholm Trail sounds amazing. <laughs> but my dislike of the speed limit doesn't give me ground to defy it. Dislike isn't a biblical reason to defy. But if we feel further convinced at some point in the future from Scripture that the government is commanding us to sin, we aren't called to make a scene, but simply to obey God and go about our lives. We aren't looking for a fight, but to be faithful to God. If we find ourselves living in a nation where Christians no longer have a voice in society, where Christians are are treated as a nuisance and treated unjustly, we should find comfort in what Peter said to suffering Christians to continue to entrust yourself to God who judges justly. As believers, our hope is in no government. It is not in a president. It is in Jesus Christ and his government. Because we trust at the end of all time, at the end of all things, that every kingdom will bow down to him. And he, on that day, will make sure that even the the wicked wicked rulers of the earth, those who afflicted his bride, will feel the full weight of his fury on that day. As the psalmist says, he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the, the afflicted. God will vindicate his people on that last day, even over against those wicked rulers of the earth that he asked them to submit to while on earth. And just think about who Mark was writing to. He's writing to a group of Christians in Rome who are being persecuted and suffering unjustly by the hands of the government. It's almost as if Mark is saying to them, keep being faithful. Jesus sees your obedience. He's going to take care of you in the end. Keep suffering well for his glory. Jesus looks at these religious leaders and says, what's in Caesar's image, give to Caesar. But what's in God's image, give to God. For by submitting to governing authorities, you submit to God's rule because Caesar's authority is not Caesar's, it's God's. Which means we show that we do not fear men or the governments of this world by submitting to God's and doing God's commands. By submitting to governing authorities, we are declaring that our God is faithful and trustworthy, that if they take advantage of us, God will take care of us in the end. Brothers and sisters, to submit to and render what is owed to the governing authorities of our lives out of obedience to God brings God great glory and praise. Why? Because we're saying, God, I'm going to do what you say even when I don't feel like it because I trust that you're just and holy and good and that you're going to take care of me in the end. That you will vindicate me and your church on the last day. You see every injustice in the world and you will right it in the end. In a chaotic world, we as believers can find comfort in this. Kingdoms will come and go. Governments will rise and fall. But God's rule is a certainty. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, regardless of the cost, entrust yourselves to God's rule. For our nation will expire, but God's rule will last for all eternity. How do we find certainty in an age of confusion? Well, not only must we entrust ourselves and yourself to God's rule, but you also must fix your heart on the Word of God. Fix your heart on God's Word. Look back with me now in verses 18 through 27. I'm just going to reread this as a way of reminder for us. There Mark writes, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, But leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong?" Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. So the Pharisees and the Herodians failed to bring Jesus down, so they sent the Sanhedrin, sent another group of men, in the attempt to bring Jesus down, they brought the, the, the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were kind of the two main groups that made up the Sanhedrin, and they could not have been more different. The Pharisees held that the first five books of the Bible, the writings and the prophets and even oral tradition made up the word of God, whereas the Sadducees only held to the first five books of the Bible. They were very conservative. And because of this, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection and the Sadducees did not. And they came to Jesus to ask a question because they didn't understand what Jesus had been teaching. In fact, they thought what Jesus was teaching was foolish. And so their attempt was this. If they can show that he believed in the resurrection, then they could show that he could not be trusted. They thought his theology was faulty and foolish and he was undermining scripture and they wanted to show this so that no one else would listen to or follow Jesus. Ultimately, we'll find that they did not understand God's work because they did not understand God's word. Their strategy was to bring up this idea of a a leveret marriage. You see this in Genesis 28 and Deuteronomy 25. What they describe is a leveret marriage. We see that Moses uh, gave a provision for it to take place that if a, a man gets married... And he dies before he's able to bear children. If the man has a brother, the brother has an obligation to marry his wife, to carry on the brother's name and lineage, and to make sure that his inheritance stays within the family. Well, in the circumstance that they give, the the illustration is a man has six brothers. He's one of seven. And so he gets married but doesn't have any children. So one of his other brothers is going to come and take on and marry her and produce children for him. Then he dies, and the other one dies, and all six of them finally die. All seven finally die, and then most of all the woman dies. My thought would be that after the third or fourth guy, the men would say, this woman is the curse of death. Let's avoid her like crazy. But the Sadducees didn't see that coming there. So ultimately what ends up happening is there is no child. And they think that they have this wonderful scenario to prove how foolish the resurrection is, and so they bring it to Jesus. So they ask, in the resurrection, who will she be married to? And they know that Jesus will have to do one of two things. He'll either have to affirm polygamy, which the Bible does not teach, or he'll actually have to say the resurrection's not true. It's one of the two things they're after in this moment. And it's been my experience that people who want to discredit Jesus and the Bible typically caricature Scripture in this way. They don't actually interact with the text honestly. They can't find a, a factual reason to discredit the Scripture, so they find some underhanded and disingenuous way to come at the Bible. And Jesus has no time for it. He responds, just not in the way they had anticipated. Look at verse 24, what Jesus says. This is about as hot as you'll ever find Jesus. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. And with this, Jesus devastates them. He says, you have no idea what you're talking about because you don't know your Bibles. And there could not have been a greater insult to the Sadducees. The Bible was their thing. They were supposed to be the experts in the law, and Jesus says, the one thing you think you're really good at, you're actually terrible at. It's like this. When American Idol came out, like, years and years ago, it was, like, the greatest show on TV. Because you would have these people that would go on, that they had been told their whole life they're amazing singers, by their mother and their grandmother, and they would speak beforehand in the interview with great confidence of how wonderful they are as singers, and then they would go stand before Simon Cowell and be terrible, and he would dismantle their dreams right in front of them. It was glorious television to watch. That's essentially what happens here. Jesus says the one thing you think you know, you actually have no idea about. Your dedication, your time, and your energy and effort you put into knowing the word of God has proved fruitless in your life. They saw themselves as the authority on God's law. and Jesus exposes they neither knew God's word, and because they did not know God's word, they did not know God's power. Now, Jesus could have left it at that because they were being just disingenuous. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were simply coming to expose how foolish they thought Jesus was. But he actually goes on, and he addresses their question, and then he exposes why they don't know their Bibles. In verse 25, he uh, addresses the question they have about the resurrection. He says this, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There's a couple things that Jesus does here. Jesus affirms that the resurrection is a certainty. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection will happen one day. Your grave will be empty. When Christ walked out of his, it meant and secured that you will walk out of yours one day. The resurrection is a certainty. But he also reveals and declares that we will not be given to marriage in heaven. Marriage was a gift given to men and women to love and enjoy one another and to create life and to fill the earth in the new creation, there'll be no need for procreation, for God's people will all be there. Now, if we can be honest for a moment, this is a little bit sad to think about, not being married in heaven. I love Megan Lacey. She's amazing. She's the greatest earthly joy that I have. Outside of Jesus and my family, she's been the one constant in my life since I was 15. I have no idea where I would be or who I'd be without her. it's complicated and hard to think about though my marriage with her has been awesome being in heaven without her being married to her is going to be even better because i will be with jesus forever and she will be with jesus that is better than being married on earth why because we were made for jesus we were created to be in relationship with him so i would encourage you if you're here and you're a married couple i'm so sorry i didn't mean to do this it's just it's just coming out If you're married, love and enjoy your spouse. But always do it in light of eternity. Because they were given to you to point you to Jesus, not to replace Jesus in your life. For those who are single and you desire to be married, though I hope that God gives you the good gift of marriage, and I hope you're able to enjoy that one day, I want to encourage you, what you have with Jesus is better than what you'll ever have with a spouse. Because what you have with him cannot be taken away, and it will never die. And for those who are here and you've been widowed or abandoned by a spouse... The sadness and the ache that you feel right now will one day be gone when Christ returns for you. Your grief will make way for glory. Your sorrow will turn into unending joy because Christ will come for you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. This passage shows us that our minds can't fully comprehend how glorious eternity will be with heaven. It's often because we think about heaven in light of our earthly relationships right now. But we should do the reverse We should think about our earthly relationships in light of heaven. And that will make our hearts long more for heaven than we do for things on this earth. What we experience now is fleeting and fading. What we experience with God in heaven will be forever and fixed. It can't be changed and it cannot be undone. Jesus not only reveals what eternity is like for believers. He reveals the grounds that we should have, the hope we have, the assurance we have in scripture for the resurrection. He goes, and we see this in verse 26 and 27, look there with me now. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. See, Jesus is going to show them this whole issue is never about marriage to begin with. This issue is all about the word of God and their misunderstanding with it. See, the Sadducees, they only held to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so they rejected passages like Isaiah 26 and and Daniel 12, which so explicitly revealed that God would raise his people from the dead one day. And so they looked down on everybody else who held to Isaiah and Daniel, for they felt they had something more superior than Isaiah and Daniel. They had Moses, and Moses, in their minds, did not explicitly teach that the resurrection would happen. The Sadducees were the kind of people If they could not find a single verse that explicitly stated it, they would not believe it. It would be like this. They would come to you and say, you say you believe in the Trinity. Show me that in the Bible. And then you would pick one of the many passages in the New Testament. You go to Matthew 28, and Jesus gives us the Great Commission, saying, go to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they would say, well, there's no Trinity there. It doesn't say Trinity. And you would say, well, though it doesn't use the word Trinity, the Bible clearly communicates and teaches that God is triune. We don't really merely believe what the Bible declares. We also believe what the Bible deduces, what should be deduced from Scripture. The Westminster Confession said, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either, so everything we need to know about God to be made right with God is either expressly declared or set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. The Sadducees only focused on what was declared from the Bible, and they missed what was to be deduced from Scripture, what was to be concluded from the Scriptures. And Jesus takes them to Exodus 3, where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and says, you've missed this the whole time. It was right in front of your noses. You should have seen it. And Jesus uses this passage in which many people might feel is very obscure, but he was playing the game on their terms in their own way, and he beat them at it. He takes them to the first five books of the Bible, five books of the Bible. He goes to Exodus to prove the resurrection is a certainty. He says, you remember the passage in Exodus 3? Maybe you've never read it, which would have been totally insulting to them, where God says, he reveals himself to Moses and says, I'm the, the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, you cannot be the God of someone who no longer exists. You would be very much of a God if you couldn't keep your people alive. What promise would that have been to Abraham? To say, Abraham, I'm going to save you to be a a father of a multitude of of many nations. You'll be the father of the nations, but then you'll die and no longer exist. What assurance would it have been to to Moses and the people of Israel if God said, hey, I've seen your bondage, I've seen your slavery, so I've come down to save you for you to be my people and I your God, and so I'm going to redeem you so that you can die in the wilderness and exist no more. Amen to that. God here, as Jesus is showing us, the Sadducees concluded from Scripture that God didn't teach the resurrection because they couldn't see it with their own eyes. But God was declaring by saying he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the resurrection was a certainty. He was declaring in this moment that death would have to give back what it had taken. He was declaring in this moment that the curse would be reversed. So Jesus showed he feared not the Sadducees. He feared not the Pharisees and their weak attempt to undermine him because he knew God's word. Now listen, you could spend the majority of your time throughout your days here on earth reading the news, watching the news. You could watch the stock market rise and fall. You could scroll social media and the only thing that will happen is you'll be catechized by a confused and fearful world. Or, You can spend more of your time reading God's Word and knowing God's Word and seeing the answers in God's Word that our world so desperately wants to find but cannot see. See, when you read God's Word, when you give yourself to knowing God's Word, you see not only what God has done, is doing, but what He will do. And you need not fear what the world says. You need not fear the the fragile attempts of the devil. You need not fear death itself because you know that the grass will wither, the flower will fade, but God's Word remains forever. So give yourself to knowing the Bible. it'll be really good for your heart and soul. God in His word has given us all that we need for life and godliness. He's not only revealed the beginning, but the end. God's word is our guide and our assurance as we walk through this dim and decaying world. We have certainty in His word, not because we have certainty in this life, not because of anything we see in the world. Not because of anything we see within ourselves, but because of everything we've seen in God's word. Jesus shows these men their problem. They did not know the power of God because they did not know the word of God. Unless you know God's word, you cannot experience God's work in the world. You've got to know his word to understand his work and see what he's doing in the world. What I love about this passage is Jesus uses these opportunities, I think, to offer a much-needed antidote to sick souls. It's almost as if he says, are you weary and worn down by the transience and impermanence of this life? Are you broken down and discouraged by the brokenness of our world? Are you looking for refuge and for comfort as you journey towards heaven? Then entrust yourself to the rule of God and fix your heart on the word of God. Because when you do these things, you're given a spiritual sight that cannot be taken from you. You see things that cannot be unseen. For when you entrust yourself to God's rule and fix your heart on God's word, you need not worry about gaining acceptance in the world because you've already gained all the acceptance you need before God through Christ. You receive a spiritual sight that sees that though this world may be decaying, it will be delivered. You have a spiritual sight that sees that though this world or this church may go through tribulation in the world, it will be triumphant in the end. A spiritual sight that sees that though Satan is waging war, he has already been defeated. And a spiritual sight that sees that though death may be a certainty, it will not have the last word. Because of Christ, it merely is a doorway to glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you in Jesus' name rejoicing that you have spoken to us through him and revealed that your word and your rule are certainties. Oh, Father, may we be a people whose hearts are not stayed on the things of the world, but they're stayed on you. May you keep us in perfect peace because we think on you, we pursue you, and we consider not only what you have done, but what you will do. Father, we pray that as we grow in our understanding of your rule and your word, that we would be a people who are faithful and resolute in a world that is dying and decaying. That those around us who are dead in their sins might be able to see our lives and give you praise for all that you're doing in us by your spirit. God, we ask now that your word would continue to go forth. Build us up for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.